Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. I want to begin tonight with a simple observation that has some profound ramifications. In the Old Testament, God dealt almost exclusively with the Jews. From Moses to Malachi, God is dealing with the nation of Israel. He gave some eternal promises to Moses, and the rest of the Old Testament is a demonstration of God being faithful to those promises which he gave to Moses. As you come to the book of Matthew, you discover an entirely different tale. The nation of Israel rejects their Messiah, and lo and behold, God turns to the Gentile. Now, as clear as any print on any page, this simple observation is true of the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, God dealt almost exclusively with the Jews. And in the New Testament, he turns to the Gentile. Now, that's a simple observation, but it has some profound ramifications. For example, does that little observation mean that God is done with the nation of Israel? And if that is the case, then that says some things that indeed have profound ramifications. What does that say about God himself? Does that mean that those eternal promises made to Moses aren't going to come to pass so that God is not faithful, but he's fickle? And what does that say about the program and the promises that God has made for us and to us? That question, those set of questions, are so serious that a whole section of a book of the New Testament is addressed to them. No less than the Apostle Paul addresses that question in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The question becomes, is God finished with Israel? Because if he is, then that has some things to say about the promises God has made So let's ask and attempt to answer the question, is God finished with Israel? To answer it, may I invite your attention to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. Romans chapter 11, verse 1 says, I say then, as God cast away his people, 
certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I alone am left and seek thy, they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer of grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their backs always. Paul introduces this passage of scripture by asking the question I posed a moment ago. Verse 1, he says simply, I say then, as God cast away his people. This question is pertinent and relevant to us, even in within the context of the book of Romans. But you will recall he got down to the end of chapter 8 and said that God has made us promises. Those promises are sure, and we are secure we will one day be glorified with Jesus Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That immediately brings up the whole problem of the nation of Israel, because in the Old Testament, God made promises to the Jews, and it appears, at least, that he did not keep them. For now, Israel has been rejected. So the question very logically follows, has God cast away his people? Actually, that's the question in all of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 9 talked about the fact that God is sovereign. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. In chapter 10, he said, however, that Israel was not saved because they chose to be in unbelief. Matter of fact, he gets down to the end of chapter 10 and he says this but to israel he says all day long i have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people israel has been disobedient in that they have refused to believe on the lord jesus christ they have refused to obey the command to trust jesus christ and be saved they are a stubborn contrary people paul says in Romans 10, 21. So then he asks in chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, that is, therefore, based on the fact that Israel has rejected God and apparently God has rejected Israel, does that mean that God has cast away his people? This question then 
is the logical result not only of chapter 10, verse 21, but of actually the last two chapters. For in chapter 9, he taught that God would have mercy on whom he would have mercy. And he's not having mercy on Israel now. Does that mean he's cast away his people? And furthermore, the Jews have rejected God. Is that then an indication that God has cast away his people? That is the question of chapter 11. Paul responds by saying, as he's done before in the book of Romans, certainly not. He responds with an emphatic denial of the question. He is horrified at the prospect that God has cast away his people Israel. So that's our answer. But how do you know that? What follows in this passage is Paul's proofs that God has not cast away his people. He gives us two proofs, and then he draws a conclusion. The first proof that God has not cast away his people is in verse 1, or where Paul says, For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's first proof that God has not cast off his people is himself. He says, I'm proof that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. He points to the fact that he is an Israelite, not just spiritually, physically. He says, I am of the seed of Abraham, meaning I am a physical descendant of Abraham. I am a Jew by physical birth. Furthermore, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. That is significant for the simple reason that that was one of the elite tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. You will recall your Old Testament history. When the nation was divided after the reign of King Solomon, 10 tribes went into apostasy. They departed from the Lord. They were the 10 northern tribes. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, remained faithful to the Lord. So Paul points with pride to his heritage and says, I am a Jew, not only a Jew, I am from the tribe of Benjamin. So, he says, I am part of the proof that God has not cast away his people. I'm a Jew, and I know the Lord, and I know God, and I'm part of the proof then that God has not cast off the Jewish people. Someone may look at that and say, yeah, but you're only one person. One swallow does not a summer make. I mean, that doesn't necessarily prove the case. So, Paul gives a second proof that God has not cast away his people. Look at verse 2. In verses 2 to 6, he gives this second proof. He says, God is not cast away his people whom he foreknew? Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. 
Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. One little phrase in verse 5, there is a remnant is called second fruit. He points to the fact that uh, there is a remnant, and that remnant is proof of the fact that God has not cast off the people Israel. But that's getting a little ahead of the story. Let's go back to verse 2. Verses 2 to 6 are giving us this proof from the remnant. But let's start at the beginning. Notice that he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Compare that with the question that is asked in verse 1. Has God cast away his people? Now, normally, if you were to ask the question, and you were to say, um, has God cast away his people? It would be sufficient to say, no. Or, as he chooses to do in verse 1, certainly not. But if you wish to make the answer to the question an emphatic denial, then you would use the same words that were used in the question, which is what Paul does here. Has God cast away his people? Answer, verse 2, God has not cast away his people. In other words, as he enters this second proof, he starts, just like he does with the first one, with an emphatic denial. The first emphatic denial is certainly not. The second emphatic denial is God has not cast away his people. Let me illustrate. Let's suppose a little boy asked his mother for a cookie. said, Mommy, may I have a cookie? Simple answer would be no. But if she wanted to emphatically deny his request for a cookie, she would say no and use his own words. You may not have a cookie. That is a more emphatic denial than a simple rejection of his request. So the very way Paul words this answer is an emphatic denial that God has not done this. Well, after that denial, he offers his proof. He says, verse 2, Do you not know, the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleaded with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they killed the prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left. Of course, what Paul is doing, referring to the story recorded in 1 Kings chapter 19. You'll remember that uh, Elijah chapter 18 stood against all the prophets of Baal and uh, won a great standoff. And then the queen, Jezebel, threatened his life, and he hightails it to the south, scared to death. He gets down and sits under a juniper tree and licks his wounds and says, Lord, I guess it's just me. That's it. I'm the only one that stayed true to you. It's just me. And God comes to this prophet wallowing in self-pity, and he says, Aha! But Elijah, you are really not alone. So Paul quotes 1 Kings chapter 19 in verse 4, where he says, God told Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed their knee to Baal. Now, what uh, God says to Elijah is, no, you're not alone. I have 7,000 people that have not apostatized. I have a 
remnant. God's minority. That faithful remnant who was tenacious and persistent, holding on to God, even though the wrath denied him and disobeyed him. So from that, Paul says, verse 5, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, by that little phrase, at this present time, he's talking, of course, about the time when he's writing the book we call Romans. So he's saying God had a remnant in the Old Testament during the ministry of Elijah, and that same principle is true in his time. And I would simply add it's true all the way down to our day. I've met Jews that know God through Jesus Christ. I've met many of them. So that uh, Paul's argument is that just like there was a remnant during the ministry of Elijah, there is a remnant today, and that demonstrates that God has not totally cast off his people. There are Jews who have come to his Messiah and who know God through the Messiah. And he ends this little phrase at the end of verse 5, according to the election of grace. That little addition uh, means, well, sure, there's a remnant. The reason there's a remnant is God chose them. It isn't based on what Israel did at all. It's based on uh, what God did. And after adding that little phrase, he picks up on it and for the next several verses discusses it. And what he says is an echo Romans 9 and 10 it says, verse 6, if it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Or if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What he means, very simply, is this. We know there's a remnant because God chose them. Well, we know there's a remnant. And he chose them by grace, and that underscores the fact that there's a remnant, because God elected them. And he says, he elected them by grace. It couldn't possibly be by works, because grace and works are mutually exclusive. That's his point in verse 6. Or if you add works into grace, you have destroyed grace. It's no longer grace. If you try to add grace into works, then you've eliminated works because those two things are mutually exclusive. To put it all very simply, you either receive something as a gift or you earn it. It is not both at the same time. You did not earn it and turn around and say it's by grace, or it wasn't given to you as a gift and you turn around and say you earned it. So in the case of this remnant, they were a remnant because of God's election, that was by grace, all goes to demonstrate that God has a remnant because he chose a remnant. So, in verses 2 to 6, he is simply arguing that the remnant argues that God has not cast away his people. Well, it's obvious. He's got a remnant left for Elijah to conclude that he was the only one, or for us to conclude that Paul is the only one in his day, would be simply to not understand what the Scripture is teaching. Would be to conclude that man has more knowledge than he really has. 
conclude that uh, you're the only one just shows your limited knowledge, your lack of understanding of God's unlimited power. So, in this passage, Paul asks a simple question. Did God cast away his people? And he gives two proofs that God is not. Number one is the Apostle Paul himself, and number two is the presence of a remnant. Now, having established that God has not cast away his people, Paul draws a conclusion. And that's given to us in verses 7 to 10. He makes the statement in verse 10. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest are hardened. Here is the conclusion. Based on what he said in the previous verses of this chapter, here's the conclusion. Some are justified because they were elected, and the rest were hardened. That's an awesome, heavy, theological conclusion. You have heard me teach the Romans 9 and 10. We have dealt with these various subjects in depth and in detail. We have dealt in depth with the whole concept of God's election, and we've talked about hardening in chapter 9. Paul's conclusion in this passage is that some are saved because God elected them. The rest are hardened. They were not hardened by God until, if you will remember my explanation in chapter 9, they first refused to believe. But nevertheless, they were hardened. The word hardened, the Greek word, means to be callous heard of a petrified forest, this word means to be petrified, hard. Israel rejected God and the Messiah and Jesus Christ were ultimately hardened. It is not that they were hardened uh, because they had not obtained justification. They did not obtain justification and therefore they were hardened. That's the order that Paul argues in the book of Romans. Let me put it like this. Hardened. The idea behind that word is callous, petrified. The opposite of it is soft. It means you're sensitive. Hardened means you're insensitive. Perhaps the best illustration is the bottom of your foot. It's soft. Take off your shoe and I had a feather, I could tickle you and it'd be sensitive and you'd giggle. You are ticklish on the bottom of your foot. Are you not? But if you take your bare feet, take off your shoes, and walk around on rocks for a while, that same foot becomes callous, hardened, petrified, insensitive. Though I think what the Scripture is teaching, the picture the Scripture is painting, is that Israel started out soft and sensitive. They rejected their Messiah. They got harder, harder, harder. How? Toward spiritual things, toward the things of God. Now, that's his statement. That's his conclusion. He gives some proof of that statement by quoting two different passages of Scripture. In verse 8, he quotes Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 29, verses 9 and 10. 
where it says God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not see, to this very day, or ears that they should not hear, I should say, to this very day. Context of Isaiah, it was first that Israel rejected God. Having rejected him, God rejected them, and he gave them a spirit of stupor, and they couldn't see with their eyes and they couldn't hear with their ears. Next, he quotes David. More specifically, he quotes Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their backs always. Their table, he says, became a trap. In that passage in Psalm 69, he's talking about Israel's rejection of the Messiah. And the table we normally think of as containing the provisions for our sustenance. That table became a trap. So they had a table, they had an opportunity, they had a provision. Instead of taking it, became a trap. So as if to say the table was set before them in the very presence of their enemies. So the table became a trap to them. Their eyes were darkened. They couldn't see. became a stumbling block and a recompense. Their backs were bowed because they rejected the Messiah. They experienced spiritual blindness. They stumbled. Their backs were bent. All to indicate that they were hardened. They got into worse trouble because of their rejection of the Messiah. Matter of fact, the whole idea of a bent back is that they were worse off. They walked around permanently like that. So they were standing up straight and erect or sitting at a table. And the picture painted in this passage is that they stumbled over something because they were blind and they got up with a bent back. Some have suggested that the anti-Semitism that has haunted the Jews especially since of their rejection of the Messiah, is one illustration of the bent back, the load that they've had to carry. But the point is simply this. He makes a statement in verse 7. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. That is, those that God chose found him. The rest were hardened. And the quote from Isaiah, the quote from David, illustration and a support and a proof of God hardening them after their unbelief. The mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So Paul quotes Isaiah and David support the statement he makes in verse 7. It's amazing, isn't it? The Jews had the scriptures, yet they didn't see God's plan. They were told very plainly in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah, and yet when he came, they rejected him outright. And instead of being soft and sensitive to the Spirit of God, they became cold and cal calculating and callous toward the things of God, and they rejected God because of their unbelief. And perhaps, as has been suggested, their unbelief was due at least in part to the very way they handled the Scriptures. They developed a, 
an approach to the Scriptures and a type of logic and reasoning that made it impossible for them to see. They developed tradition that blinded them. They had the Torah, which is nothing more than the law. We call it the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. And they had the Talmud that was supposed to explain the Torah. And they got so caught up in the Talmud and rabbinic reasoning that they totally lost sight of the Torah and what it was really teaching Consequently, they didn't recognize the Messiah even when he came and looked them square in the face. I read something the other day that illustrates this very, very well. It was a story of um, an official in Nazi Germany who uh, years ago met a rabbi and said to him, "Um, you know, I understand that the ancient Jewish rabbis developed a particular way of reasoning and in a particular way of approaching the scriptures, and I would like for you to teach it to me. And the rabbi said, uh, I'm sorry, I can't. You are too old. He said, uh, we only start with small children, and we have three questions that we ask them, and if they're able to answer all three, then uh, we let them study under the rabbi. And the German insisted that the Rabbi, give him the three questions. So he said, all right, I will. Question number one. Two men fell down a chimney. One came out clean and the other dirty. Which one washes? And the German said, ah, that's simple. The dirty one. The rabbi said, no. He said, the clean one looked at the dirty one, saw that he was dirty, thought he was dirty, and so he went and walked. You failed that question. Second question. Two men fell down a chimney. One came out clean and the other came out dirty. Which one washes? The German said, well, that was like the first question. He said, no, it's an entirely different question. So the German said, all right. The clean one went and washed. Rabbi said, no. The dirty one looked at the clean one, and he said, isn't it amazing that both of us could fall down the chimney and come out clean? And the clean one said, but we didn't. You're dirty. And they held up their hands, and the dirty one saw that he was dirty, so he went and washed. Third question. Two men fell down a chimney. One came out clean and the other came out dirty. Which one washes? And the German wisely said, I don't know. And the rabbi said, neither one. It's a ridiculous story. If two men fell down a chimney, one wouldn't come out clean and the other dirty. Now that strikes us as humorous, but... That's something of the reasoning that some people have when they come to the Scriptures. Consequently, they are blinded, and they don't see, and they end up rejecting Jesus Christ. So, let's summarize this passage. The point Paul is making in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, is that God has not cast away his people Israel. Paul himself 
and a believing remnant demonstrate that. Though, he goes on to say, God elects some to be saved, and he hardens those who do not believe. Now, let me back away from this passage for just a second. Put it in the context of the book of Romans. I think in the total context of Romans, especially 9, 10, and 11, what I would say from this passage is that Paul is arguing that many have rejected the Messiah with, from within Israel, but the rejection is not total. As a matter of fact, as he made the point in chapter 9, numbers are not the issue anyway. That is, if God made a promise, it can be fulfilled with just a small remnant. He doesn't have to have the whole nation in order to fulfill his promise. Even though that's the point I think he makes here, he goes on in the latter part of this chapter, as we shall see, to argue that ultimately when Christ comes back, all Israel will be saved. So, the real pertinent point of this question is, is God faithful to his promises? In the Old Testament, he made promises to Israel. Is he faithful to those promises? Or has he cast off his people? And that means he's not faithful to his promise. The answer is, God has not cast off his people. God is not fickle. God is faithful. Now, folks, that has direct, relevant, pertinent value to us as individual believers in Jesus Christ. Because, you see, God has made promises to us. God has said, I give unto them who believe eternal life, and they shall never perish. Someone came up to me this morning to talk about the doctrine of eternal security. One of the things that I said, of course the Bible teaches eternal security. It is bound up in the very promise God gave to us when he saved us. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. Present tense. John 3.36. That's the promise of God. That if I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for me, that he arose from the dead, I have eternal life. That's a promise. Does it mean I'm going to always do what I should do? Does it mean I'm always going to obey the Lord? It means that God has given me a promise and I am secure in it. Amen? But you see, if God ever broke one of his promises... How do I know he'd keep his promise to me? That's the whole point of this section of Romans in general, this paragraph in Romans in particular. No. No, my friend, 
God has not cast off his people. That means God is faithful to his word and God is faithful to his promises. That means I can rest assured. I can be sure and I can be secure. The promise that if I trust in Jesus Christ, I have eternal life and nothing can separate me from the love of God. And that goes for the rest of the promises in the book. There are other promises as well. You can know that God will be faithful to those promises. How can you know? Well, one of the great reasons that you know is because God has not cast off his people, Israel. But he has saved them by election. Paul is an illustration. The remnant from Elijah's day till death is another. It brings great comfort to my heart. If God has fulfilled his promises to them, God will fill, fulfill his promises to me. The story is told that back many years ago, Frederick the Great, king in Prussia, said to a chaplain, I have begun to doubt the validity and veracity of the Scriptures. I want you to give me a proof that the Bible is the Word of God in one word. And the chaplain said, I can do that. Israel. Now, if you really understand what's going on, that statement is profound. The Old Testament, God made a whole bunch of promises. And a lot of what this book is about is God's faithfulness to keep those promises. He promised that if they would follow him, he'd bless them. Did he do that? You bet. He also promised that if they disobeyed him, he would scatter them to the ends of the earth. Did he do that? You bet. You can rest assured. God has not cast away his people. And what that means to us is that God is faithful to his promise. Our Father, we thank you for your great mercy, faithfulness to us in a day. We're not sure of much of anything anymore. Things we used to count on, we can't count on anymore. Comforting to know that underneath are the everlasting arms, that we are established upon a rock that shall not move. We thank you for your word, for your promises, for your faithfulness to Israel and your faithfulness to us. Thanks, Father, for being consistent, immutable, and faithful.
Jesus' name, amen.